Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians? Uh, I call it a book, but Ephesians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a church in the urban center of Ephesus, hence it bears the title Ephesians. Ephesus was like Los Angeles, it was a cultural hub, it was a difficult place to live, full of darkness, it was expensive, it was dysfunctional, it has all kinds of uh, pockets of different ethnic groups and communities and politics and division and all the rest, just like we experience in Los Angeles. A tough place. And Paul has a tender heart for that tough place, so he writes this letter and we'll get into it momentarily. But by way of introduction, this morning I want to offer you the final installment in a series of sermons on the doctrine of adoption that I've entitled A Family Made in Heaven. The language of family in heaven flows directly from Ephesians chapter 1, which we will see in a moment as we get into that text. Uh, I have entitled today's sermon as the final installment of A Family Made in Heaven. Today's message is called Adoption as Missio Dei. If you're unfamiliar with the term Missio Dei, it is a Latin phrase that translates into English as the mission of God. It refers to the understanding that our God is a missionary God. He is actively involved in the world, reaching out to people on the margins. Uh, the, the, the church is a part of this Missio Dei, and God has called us and saved us and empowered us to, to, to extend his missionary movement. Uh, God is on a mission to save sinners, and more than saving them, he is on a mission to make them his very own sons and daughters by way of spiritually adopting them. We have been focusing on this doctrine, and it's significant because in the month of November, we have the National Adoption Month, month which is celebrated in our country in all 50 states. Sociologically, the adoption, adoption as an act sociologically is the act of taking voluntarily a child of other parents and making them your own child. As our nation has been thinking about adoption sociologically, I wanted us to think about it soteriologically. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Soteros is uh, the, the, the word from scripture to describe God's act of saving. Ology is the study of. So soteriology, the study of salvation. We began this four-part sermon series not with soteriology. We didn't start with soteriology. We, are, we actually started it with theology proper, you may recall. Before we dug into soteriology, we talked about theology. That is the study of ology, God, theos. We began by looking at who God is, specifically that God is triune in his existence. He eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. We don't have three gods. We have one God, for these are persons that share one divine nature. What is unique about this and very special about this is that it reveals to us a God who eternally dwells in love. A, a God who before any of this was here, before the foundations of the world, before creation itself was eternally dwelling in a loving, triune nature. A father, son, and spirit. The son loving his father. The father loving the son. The spirit loving the son. The spirit loving the father. The father pouring out his heart on his son. And just in this eternal love, this eternal union. And then God creates the world. As you step into the Bible, it begins with God. You see the spirit hovering over the waters. You see God creating by the word. Later, as the story of the scriptures unfold, we have the word identified as the Son. 
As God creates this world, the eternal loving God, he pours out his love into the creation. This is where we began the sermon series, with this loving, eternal, triune God. Uh, I labored throughout the series to uh, share with you that Father and Son, Spirit, these persons are real persons. Uh, specifically, the Father and the Son, I have emphasized to you that these are not metaphors. We're not projecting these onto God with our human categories of fathers and sons. Actually, if there were no fathers in the earth, there would still be a father in heaven. If there were no sons in the earth, there would still be the son eternally with his father in the heavens. With this foundation, we moved, the foundation being built on this triune, holy, loving God, we moved into the work of salvation. The work of salvation uh, is important as we follow this loving, triune God, this creation that he pours his love on. Sadly, his love is rejected. And so the story of the Bible opens with a story of unrequited love as God's love is rejected, as humanity rebels against him. But God in his mercy and grace sees fit to rescue us, to save us from this rebellion. And so we move then from the theology of God into soteriology and how this loving God has aimed to save a people for, for, for himself in the midst of this rejection and rebellion. Um, while the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is not a metaphor, the adoption that we see inside of the scripture to describe uh, the work of saving is a metaphor. So we've been talking about our adoption by God, how God is saving uh, rebellious humans and offering them forgiveness, and more than forgiveness, he's offering them family. Now, a moment ago, I said this is metaphoric, yet at the same extent, it is not merely metaphoric. It's actually real. We read together in our study, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. That sounds metaphoric. Called children of God. Wait, hold up, hold up, wait. And such we are. You see, it's more than metaphor, it's reality. We really are children of God. In the Bible, we see this sociological act of adoption where you take a child that wasn't born into your family and you make them your very own. That sociological act is used to describe the soteriological act of God uh, rescuing people from this rebellion. The Bible speaks of salvation as adoption to show us how God takes sinful humans and brings them into a redeemed family. Ephesians chapter 1, draw your eyes at verse 2 in the text. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Here you see the language of heavens and the language of adoption tethered together to the saving work of God in and through the historical Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. And here's the thing about our adoption, as Paul describes it, our adoption isn't something that we had coming. Furthermore, our adoption isn't something that we even wanted. Uh, we, we weren't cute orphans like little red-headed orphan Annie. On the contrary, we were raging red-headed Chuckies. Uh, if you don't know the reference, you can Google it. It's a little red-headed demonic child who runs around. So we, we weren't little cute orphans. 
we, we, we didn't have something in us that God goes, oh, that one's cute. I want to rescue that one, like pound puppies or whatever. We, we didn't want it. We didn't have it coming. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were Chuckies, children of the corn, born into darkness, born into sin. And we're not only born that way, but we behave that way. Our condition is worse than curious. It is beyond bleak, more desperate than depravity. In our, in our sin, we are in conflict with our Creator. We are in league with Lucifer, the prince of darkness, as Paul has described him, the devil. When confronted, uh, when Jesus confronted lost sinners, he boldly broke this news of our dark spiritual paternity test. If you draw your eyes up here in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. That is the condition that we were born in, born into this rebellion. You have likely seen clips of those tabloid talk shows where they do the paternity test. Uh, you know, it's always dramatic, and, you know, it's like, is he my baby? You know, Maury Povich, if you're a little older, Geraldo, you know, Jerry Springer, that kind of genre, and they do the paternity test. See, I told you he's not mine, or whatever. In this case, there is a spiritual paternity test, and to our chagrin, it reads, the devil, the devil is your father. Again, you're not cute orphan annies. You, you, are, you are Chuckies. You are born sinners in Satan's family who, together with the parents of humanity, started a rebellion against God. God poured out his love, and his love was rejected. And as a result, humanity is, is, is no longer under this, enters into existence under the fatherhood of God, but under the darkness. Notice how John 8, 44 speaks in the text that I have in front of you, this verse right here. It speaks of the beginning. It's out the gate. It's from the start. We rebelled against God. We, humanity, made a mess of things. And ever since, humans have been spiraling out of control. Beyond our concupiscence, we are culpable. So we cannot blame our sin on being born that way, for we condemn ourselves in our actions. Look at verse 3 where we left off in Ephesians 2. What does it say? Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh of mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. It's in our nature, it's in our behavior. We walk in sin, Paul says, and it is a condition that we have from conception and birth, hence we are born into the world at war. We currently have nations at war in the world. Uh, we have Hamas who recently slaughtered over a thousand Israelis, including women and children, and kidnapping hundreds. We have a war with Russia and Ukraine. Now, if you were born today in one of those war zones, in those crosshairs, right? If you were born in one of those nations today, and surely there are children being born in those nations, you would be born into a dire situation with an enemy next to you wanting you dead. You, you enter into this, you're born in this nation, and there's a nation next to you that is your enemy and wants you dead. Um, I say this to parallel what is, what is the case of humanity. We enter into the world at war. And in this case, the neighboring enemy is not a foreign national power. It is an infinite, cosmic, omnipotent power, God. In addition to being all-powerful and infinite, God is holy and just. 
this means that no one's going to get away with anything because he's all powerful and he's all just. He will judge sin. In the end, evil will be vanquished. This is scary and bad news because people we love are under the spell of the kingdom of darkness and those who are in Christ were once there as well. And so we cry out to God, Lord, save those we love. Lord, save our friends. Lord, loosen our mouths that we would proclaim this good news that is the power of God unto salvation. Be merciful to us. And thank God that God is merciful. Look back at the text, verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. With, with which he loved us. Again, here you have that story of this God. He's got this great love and he loves us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He, 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 he came and got us when we were dead in our sins. He didn't wait for us to make ourselves adoptable or to look cute or acceptable or to do anything. It, it didn't have anything to do with us. It had everything to do with him. But God, even when we were dead in our transgressions, look back at verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Saved from what? Punishment. Saved from who? The, the holy God who is just and we stand under his justice condemned. Salvation, a gift. Gifts, by definition, are, are, are gifts. They, they aren't something that you earn. It's not something that you merit. Uh, granted, we are a culture that has gift-giving with strings attached. You know, I give you a gift, you give me back a gift. Uh, I give you a gift in this amount, you give me a gift in that amount. You know, we, we have a way of sort of messing up the fundamental nature of gifts. But gifts, by definition are undeserved and unearned, just like our salvation. It isn't something that we merited. God chose to, to rescue sinners and to justify them, to declare them. The word justified means to declare that, that you are what you are not. Uh, namely, you are, are a sinner, but I'm going to declare you to actually be something else, to be holy. Uh, one way of describing the word justified is to say it's just as if I'd never sinned in the eyes of God. When you were in your sin, he came and got you, Ephesians tells us. Look back at the text, verse 6, where we left off. It gets even sweeter. He raised us with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show you the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is the what? It is the what, church? The gift of who? Of God. This wondrous gift of justification. Just as if you had not sinned. He looks at you and sees the mess that is there and he says, I'm going to see right through this to the cross where the son dies in our place. And through that death he exchanges his purity and his holiness in exchange for our, our sin. That is justification. Uh, this church is a part of the Protestant tradition, and as Protestants, we rightly proclaim the doctrine of justification. Uh, but in proclaiming the doctrine of justification, it is important to connect it to this doctrine of adoption that we've been studying in the month of November. I don't think we should ever teach less on the doctrine of justification, but I think we need to see how Justification positions us to fully understand this doctrine of adoption. Uh, Dr. J.I. Packer, 
helps us understand the difference between justification and adoption and how they work together. Let me put this quote in front of you. Justification is the primary blessing of the gospel because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's justice or judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than anything else in the world. And this gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in the terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Think about that. Forgiveness that we receive by God, it's incomprehensible. He would, he would choose to look past our sins, even to wash them away. How great is that? But even greater is to be loved and to be cared for and to belong in a family and of all families, the family of God. And of all fathers, God the Father. To be loved by God the Father. Do the words closeness, affection, generosity describe your perception and, and experience with God? Do they? If not, perhaps you are more aware of your sin than you are aware of the adopting grace of God. Of a father who looks past that sin and welcomes you in. Those of us who have had loving fathers, in particular Christian fathers, uh, you've experienced that, granted at imperfect levels, because no earthly father matches to the heavenly father. I think in my own life, I was very wayward as a teenager. I rebelled against uh, God and, and Christ church in ways that I look back on with great shame. Um, I, I had a come to Jesus moment at a, at a church in the South Bay that radically impacted me in repentance and faith. I felt the burden to confess to my own father the sins that I had committed while living in his home. I thought, I, you know, I, I, I need to seek his forgiveness in this because I was duplicitous as a son and running around doing things that I shouldn't. Uh, and I got away with it, frankly, because, you know, uh, strangely, my dad was a cop, but he really, you know, wasn't good at it, I guess. You know, we'd be in the bedroom, you know, smoking weed. And my dad's like, what is that incense? You know, you're like, it's drugs, dad. Uh, so, you know, I had to sit down and explain to the old man uh, the incense and some other things in my life that are really sad. And I'll never forget you know, as I was sharing with him and telling him I'm sorry, and my old man looked at me, he's like, well, dang it, Matt, I never did anything like that, but uh, I'm a sinner too, and, you know, God forgives you, you know, I forgive you, you know, love you, Matt, you know, and then he pops back on his TV or whatever, I was like, man, that was crazy, uh, like, my dad accepts me, even though I've done all this horrible stuff, uh, that's what fathers do, that's what fathers do. And so justification, as we think about it, right, this, this metaphor of, of the court and of God's law and God's justice, and you think about going to court and standing in front of a judge and, right, and a judge that you can't bribe or get away with or whatever, right, like who's, who's going to execute justice on you for breaking the law, who's going to throw the book at you, right, that's a scary thing to go to court. But the, the flip side of this is that the, the criminal court 
turns into a family court, and now you're in the chambers of the judge, and he's welcoming you into his family. In, in, in order to experience more of the love of God, the affection of God, the closeness of God, the generosity of God, the forgiveness of God, it's, it, it, that's why we need this doctrine, and that's why God has given it to, to us in Scripture. Uh, this month, we have been looking at these key texts that you have written on your outline, and I commend you to go back and revisit these texts. Romans 8, 15, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 23, not only this, we confess ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive what? The adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son and a son, an heir through God. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, we just read it. Being predestined as adopt for adoption as sons, according to his kind intentions. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born what? Of God. 1 John 1, 13. Uh, or John 1, 13. Now we move to 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And we've already read this verse this morning, that we would be called children of God. And what? Such we are. It's more than a metaphor. It's a reality. What a beautiful picture. Adoption. I hope this month has been rich for you as you dig into this. And and moving forward, keep going back to these texts. God has adopted you. Friends, you don't choose your parents. And so, some of the youth in the room are like, who are you telling, right? Uh, you don't choose your parents. I didn't get to pick Herman and Sharon. That's just, you know, that was my lot, right? You don't get to pick your parents. Um, in adoption, though, there is a picking. There is a choice. Now, what might motivate someone to adopt? Of course, we can think of selfish reasons of why people might adopt. A person might want to just work the system and get money from the government or something like that. Or a person might want to be seen as like spiritual or philanthropic or whatever. Uh, you know, there's, there's bad reasons for adopting, selfish reasons, immature reasons. Um, but what motivates purely adoption is love. It's grace. It's selflessness. In our case, there was nothing attractive as already covered uh, in us. We weren't, as I said, we weren't orphan annies. We were Chuckies. We were undeserving. We were undesiring. We weren't cute. We were sinners. In his case, God wasn't trying to show off how philanthropic he was or trying to, you know, fill a hole in him that was empty or something. On the contrary, God adopted us in his grace and in his love. And in his love and his grace, these are unconditional and limitless. They never run out. Many of the Christians that I, I meet who have never known a love like this, um, they, they struggle along these lines. And so it's important to point them to the perfect father and to point them to the word of God. Many Christians, uh, they, through their childhood, uh, they, 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 they obtain scars. In childhood, they learn that their parents' approval and love had to be earned by conforming to their parents' dictates and living up to their expectations. And because they could never be good enough or achieve enough, they 
were never sure that they were accepted by their parents. And that kind of rejection cuts deep into our thoughts and our emotions as we're growing up, and it's easy for us to transfer that same assumption into our relationship with God. There are many Christians who cannot really accept this lavish love of God for us. Uh, Many Christians who are trying to be good enough to persuade God to love Him rather than accepting the fact that He loves you. And so, so such Christians that will embark on a ceaseless treadmill of Christian activity, trying to prove to themselves and others that their grades are good enough to pass with God. If we put in sufficient effort, surely He's going to bless us. Surely he will, he will love us, we think. But we fail to realize that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. His love is eternal. His love is bound in the gospel. He has accepted you as Ephesians tells us while while we were sinners while we were in the darkest while we were in 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 the belly of rebellion he accepts us it's by grace there's a tendency among fallen humanity to pervert the grace of god into a religion of works what should be a delight becomes a duty and then drudgery we need to be careful with this as believers because this is kind of a default screen Uh, for us as a part of this fallen humanity that that we belong to apart from Christ. We need to stop our busy lives from time to time and sit at the well of this great doctrine of adoption and see the love of God that he has for us and to see that in salvation he has made us a family. That is the beauty and the importance of us being here on Sundays. Every Sunday we come here and we embody this. You look around the room, this is an adopted family. Uh, And and often I say this, and often I remind myself of this, this is one of the beauties of the church, is this is an organization that is built by God. And so as you dwell in the church, you're going to meet people and, and become a part of people's lives who you otherwise wouldn't be friends with, who you otherwise don't have much in common with. You, you, you might not vote the same or listen to the same music or like the same things because our affinity wasn't brought together and shared things that we have in common. Our identity was built by a father in heaven who's adopting us. And adopted families have a way of looking that way. In our own family, uh, we popped out four and we adopted three. Our, our, our three adoptive children uh, have different makeups. And so we'll be out and about, it, you know, and people say, are all of those yours? You go, yeah, yeah, they're all mine. Uh, are, are you done yet? I, I'm like, uh, I, 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 no. I mean, if we, you know, I'm open to whatever God wants to do. They're all yours. Yeah, yeah, they're all mine. Uh, oh, some of them don't look like you. And it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's kind of how adoption works, you see. And none of us look like our father, who's perfect in his love. I shared with you uh, last week uh, a story of just in my own life being uh, born into a home that had a a great deal of brokenness. Uh, My parents were divorced. We were latchkey kids, stereotypical Gen X latchkey kids. One of the things in my childhood uh, that really protected me from a lot of the brokenness was spending the night at friends' houses. I loved spending the night at friends' houses where there was a mom and a dad. I love being at a table and having a meal with a mom and a dad. I I love being in the presence of a mom and a dad and watching them interact with their children and and being welcomed into the family. I I loved that because at home I couldn't get that. Um, My parents were in different places. Their relationship with each other were different. 
stepdads, stepmoms, and, and all the rest, and there's a heaviness that comes with that. I shared with you specifically last week about how uh, in my early adulthood, how I met my wife, and one of the things that was so significant about stepping into their family was the same thing. There was a mom and a dad, six kids, one bathroom. You're going to stand in line to get into that bathroom. Um, and, you, you know, it's just a beautiful family, a beautiful family. I shared with you how intimidated I was stepping into that family, coming out of such brokenness. And in particular, there was a bookshelf in the home where they had these photo albums. And like all six of the kids had photo albums, not just one, but they had photo albums of like every year of their life. My wife had a stack of these. I was like, what is this? You know, a photo album. And I had this realization that I don't have a photo album. I was in my 20s at that point. Like, I don't have a photo album. I don't have a book with pictures of my childhood and my parents moving through it. I don't even have one book. My sister-in-law, or who became my sister-in-law, actually made me a photo album. It's one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Uh, she went through and found different pictures and scourged through and, and made me a photo album. And it's cool what little pictures I have from my childhood to move from those, because she's just kind of started with the beginning and filled in the gaps where she could. But then all of a sudden, the pictures move from that brokenness into, you know, my wife and I getting married and starting our own marriage and having family. When you think about salvation and adoption and being welcomed into a family, it's like God's making a photo album of family. And it's a storyline. And then all of a sudden, you appear. And you're in the family. You're in the family of God. I want you to feel this. I want you to experience this. The reality that you are in this family book. And the reality of being in this family book, it isn't for us just to have warm fuzzies about God, but it's also to call us into action into the world. So soteriology um, is, is going to flow into sociology, you see. And that's where I want to take us next. I'm going to take a sharp right turn. If you would move from the book of Ephesians into the book of James. What I want to end this sermon series with is really calling us to action calling us to the sociological. Uh, for three of these messages, we focus really hard on the doctrine of God and soteriology and understanding the doctrine. And now we've got to move into the practical. What, is, what does this mean for us practically? Uh, what it means for us practically in terms of our understandings of guilt and shame and belonging and the rest. There's, we, I've teased some of that out this morning, but it also means that practically we should have a heart for the orphan. The book of James has an amazing section that reveals the heart of God for the orphaned and reveals the principle that our theology should move to action. Faith flows to works. We're not saved based on our works, but those who are saved, it will flow into work. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Our beliefs flow into our behavior. The Bible is quite clear that faith without works is dead. Let me show you this, James chapter 2, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The point is, our theology should drive us into action. In this case, our soteriology should drive us into sociology. Our faith works. Faith and works are two sides of the same coin. Paul says we are saved by faith. James says that the faith that 
actually is saving is a faith that is working. My brethren, look at James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious uh, Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes to you in the assembly with a gold ring and he's dressed in fine clothes, and there is also a poor man in dirty clothes, do not pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, you sit here in the good place. And then say to the poor man, you stand over there and, and, and sit by my footstool. Have, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? This text, let's pause right here, speaks loudly today as it did, uh, loudly today in the 21st century as it did in the first century. It is, it is still not always easy to know how to accommodate uh, you know, different people and, you know, how, how this works out. But in their culture, they would give preference to the rich. And we still have that problem today. Uh, I, it's a part of fallen humanity to give special privilege uh, to people who might benefit you socially or economically or, or whatever. Uh, you know, attractiveness, you know, the, you, you're going to get certain things that people who are unattractive might not. James is, is, is aiming at that. He goes, don't do that specifically at the rich and the poor. Listen, verse 5, listen, it says, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Did that blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, verse 8, you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. Notice James talks about the poor and the rich. There's a tendency for them to neglect the poor, the needs of others. Again, true in the ancient world, true in our world today. The remedy is repentance and faith in God, which is marked by a love for God and a love for those on the margins. Look at verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point has become guilty of all. The sin of partiality is the sin of judging people by accidentals and externals, things they don't have control over. As James noted, it always bears down on the poor and the disadvantaged. Partiality is favoritism and is sinful, Scripture is telling us. Look at verse 14. But what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled... And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. James' point is clear. We cannot claim to be Christians if our lives do not show it. And the example that James gives is a litmus test of sorts of caring for the marginalized and caring for the poor in your life. This is not an occasional dropping of some coins in the hands of a homeless man but it is investing your life in the weaker among us as a community, and, and for us in the community of the greater Los Angeles area. We come to the city as Christians not to be like the rest of the city and live as consumers, rather to die for the city and the cause of the gospel and giving our lives in every way to the glory of God. Uh, this week I was reminded of this, uh, of this powerfully. Uh, a, a, brother in our, uh, a brother in our church uh, texted me a, a picture of, of their Thanksgiving at the house. And in, in the picture, he's got, he's got all of his family there, you know, kids, grandkids and everything. It's just a gorgeous picture. Just, oh my gosh. And it was just a beautiful picture, seeing everyone together and whatever. And then in the midst of the picture, there's a guy 
that he had been ministering to through the church who was on the streets for years. Homeless, drug addicted, um, just the kind of guy that, you know, people will look at and just, you know, keep on driving by. Um, he, this man who shared this picture with me, I'm saying this man because I didn't ask him before and I'm on a, I'm freestyling here, but sends this picture and, you know, I'm looking at this guy in the picture with his family, who's a guy from the streets of Playa, Westchester, drug addict, who was loved on, who was given, you know, he would sleep on our steps here at the church, the food pantry that you guys donate to, the fresh groceries and all that. He'd be fed, loved on, shared the gospel with. Uh, he recently was in service, uh, got him in a, in a rehab program. He's been sober for like a year now. He's back on his feet doesn't have any family. So this brother in our church said, hey, you're coming to my family for Thanksgiving. And there he is with all of his kids, his grandkid. And here's a guy who was out on the streets just the year before and had been on the streets for years. And it's a story of just brokenness and addiction and no one being there for him, using and abusing him. That, that's what God is calling us to. Our theology drives us into this kind of action where the, the homeless and the, the addicted and the broken and the dangerous are welcomed in and given a seat at the table. I want to suggest today that one of the best ways that we can actually care for the poor, as James is talking about it here, is actually in just that, welcoming them into our homes. And one of the best ways that we can do that is actually through the ministry of adoption, where you give someone a permanent home that they're always welcome at. The mission of adoption really gets us at the heart of God. The lesson of James is quite clear that we need to care for the poor, the poorest of the poor, no jobs, no home, no prospects. Who is the poorest of the poor with nothing? It's the orphaned. And the orphaned are those who God is greatly concerned with. See on your outline here, I'm going to give you some cross-references that you have in parentheses here. Just keep your Bibles open to James, and I'll, I'll just shotgun these. That God defends the fatherless inside of scriptures. See the, the parentheses here that you have on your outline? Psalm 82, verse 1, God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of rulers. Verse 3, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Psalm 82 is very clear that God has an eye on, on, on those who are without fathers. Psalm uh, 68, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song for him. The one who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him, a father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. There you see his heart, there you see it. Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord protects strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, and he thwarts the way of the wicked. The point in these verses is to see how God is an advocate for the fatherless. Uh, God eternally dwells in the Father and the Son. You have this family, you have this community in God. And, and from this, he also flows into action. You see, from his nature, he flows out into action. The God who is Father, Son, Spirit, moves with a heart in broken humanity for those who are fatherless. He is, God is, a social worker. He is an attorney. He is a policeman. He is a counselor. He is grieved by the condition of those who do not have homes. The point is very clear. Uh, the point is very clear in beholding this God before us. S second on your outline there, B, the righteous care of orphans. 
Thousands of years ago, there was a man named Job, and we have a whole book in the Bible named Job after him. Job faced horrible suffering. In a matter of minutes, Job, a prominently wealthy and godly man, lost all of his possessions, all of his children, all of his health. He wrestled with making sense out of this calamity, and so did his close friends, because he was an amazing dude. And yet he was born a sinner like you and I. So with that in mind, the book of Job is, not, is really not calamity at all. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? That, that question assumes that there are good people. We're, we're all born in sin. No one's good. It's, Job is not a calamity at all. It's actually a story of justice. It's just that we don't read it from that vantage point. The author doesn't want us to because he draws us in the tension of suffering of the righteous to get us to that point. And in describing the righteousness of this sinner, Job himself recounts about how there was a care and a heart for the orphan. Let me put this in front of you. Job 31, 16 through 23. If I have kept from the poor from their desire, or I've called the eyes of the widows to fail, or have I eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it? But from my youth he grew up with me as a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen any perish for lack of clothing or needy for lack of covering. If his loins have not thanked me, he's not been worn by the fleece of my sheep. If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from my socket, my arm be broken from the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of his majesty I can do nothing. In this monologue, notice that Job speaks of his heart for the orphan. This was a response from his friend Eliphaz's thoughts about why he was suffering earlier in chapter 22. Job speaks of his love and response for the orphan. He shared his food with the orphans. He welcomed the orphans under his roof. He encouraged widows, verse 16. He counseled them against oppressive uh, creditors in verse 18. He gave clothing to those who didn't have it, even if they were unappreciative, verses 19 through 20. He never mistreated the orphans in court in the gate, that is the place of court proceedings, Job had a position of influence in the government, in the court, and he used that position of influence to help. He says, if otherwise, let, let, my, my, should, let my arm fall from its socket. Let my arm fall off. He was a man who was willing to put his body out there and say, look, like this is the life that I modeled. And Job modeling this for us is an example. Hopefully you've kept your Bibles open to James. I'm just shotgunning some cross-references so that we would see the heart of God and as it's exemplified in certain characters like Job and in God himself. Uh, friends, our faith is a faith of sacrifice. Our Lord sacrificed for us and he calls us to do the same. In James, if you still have it open, please look at chapter 1, verse 27. James 1, 27. What does the text say? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this. You want to know what true spirituality looks like verse 27 visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself unstained from the world there you go summed up in summed up in a sentence this is what true spirituality is it's not warm fuzzies it's not having all this theology down or whatever it's it's a faith that moves in action the word visit here means more than just visiting, the way we use the term in English language or stopping by and saying hi. The Greek word, it actually means to take care of. Episketomai means to take care of, to welcome in, to care for. Caring for orphans is an expression itself of the gospel. And what an expression of the gospel which declares God's adoption of us sinful orphans. 
The act of adoption on the part of a Christian is a natural act. We are offering what we have received, adoption. And this is why adoption is so important to the Missio Dei, the mission of the church. We have a chance to reach the world, to show the world a, a picture of God. Adoption displays the God who is, this triune God. You know, one of the things that makes our faith unique is that doctrine of the triunity of God. You know, there's lots of groups who say, I'm a Christian. If you, you know, one quick way of getting at it is say, do you believe there's one God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit? Oh, no, I don't believe that. Okay, that's why we don't think, you know, groups like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. are Christian, because they deny that fundamental reality of who God is. Other religions don't believe in a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, other religions don't believe in the sociological good of adoption. Uh, for example, did you know that in Islam, adoption historically was not exactly allowed? Islam has its rules and regulations regarding adoption quite distinct from what we see inside of the scripture. In fact, it, it, is, uh, diff it, it really kind of sets a contrast here uh, between, you know, uh, Christ and Muhammad. In Islam, it has been disallowed to name an adopted son with the name of the adopting father. This is common knowledge, by the way. You can even see this on Wikipedia if you're like, no, that's not true. Uh, Islam also rejects the notion of an adopted son becoming a biological part of the family. Hence, the adopted son is counted as non-mahram. Uh, this could be sidestepped by having the child uh, suckling the adoptive mother in the first half of his years. Then he can, you know, have more status. This is not what we have seen in our studies, however, uh, this month as we've been studying the doctrine of adoption. This is part of what sets Christianity apart. A triune God who justifies sinners and adopts them as his own. Uh, it should go without saying that all religions are not the same. They have different beliefs about God, different ways of life. For Christianity, adoption is a calling our community and is special. I shared with you uh, during, this, during this month stories of our own family. One of the most special things in the process of adoption is to, to hear the judge rattle off that the adoptive child takes on the status uh, as that of a biological child, and the court reissues uh, a, a certificate with the adoptive parents on it. It's so powerful. If you were able to come to the adoption seminar, uh, Ryan and Madison were up here, and with tears in, in their eyes, Madison read off uh, word for word from the recording of the judge and the court on this note. It, it is so beautiful. And yet for other faiths and other cultures, adoption is a stigma. Um, a, a friend who was a missionary to Middle Easterners once told me the fascinating story of why adoption is so taboo for Muslims. The prophet Muhammad had, an, had adopted a former slave, Zaid. When Zaid grew, he married a woman, uh, just one of many. He was a polygamist, Muhammad was, uh, named Zaid, whom Muhammad himself actually fell in love with. Zaid divorced uh, he divorced her in anger, and Muhammad took her then as a wife. Uh, soon after, Muhammad received a revelation from God, uh, or rather Allah, making adoption illegal. Islam declares, Allah does not regard your adopted sons as your own. Quote, end quote. That's so sad. It is now legal for some Muslims to adopt, but there are a number of rules that surround it. Adoptive sons are to be named after their biological father instead of taking the surname of their adoptive parents. The Quran tells adoptive parents that they are simply the trustees of someone else's child. Inheritance uh, can, uh, can come, but maybe not. You're not actually a real uh, member of the family in that regard. One of the problems with Islam is that they don't have a concept of a father God. 
Of course, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity as well. Consequently, they don't have a concept of being spiritually and legally adopted into the household of faith, which is central to our faith. Uh, the, the theologian J.I. Packer, who I quoted from earlier, he has written an intention-grabbing line in his classic text, Knowing God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Elsewhere, he writes, adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Let that sink into your hearts as it becomes natural for us as a community to talk about God adopting us and to see adoption working out among us. On your outline, you have a parenthesis of verses, which I covered in the first sermon series. I'm not going to cover them now because I need to lay on the plane. We are running out of time. So by way of conclusion, a couple of points of reflection. We've covered a lot of ground. I wanted you to see in the month of November uh, the beautiful triune God who is love and to see this work of adoption that he has done for us. I wanted to conclude with just the practical call and kind of challenge like, hey, let's get involved in the work of adoption in the city. Hey, let's worship the God who adopts. Uh, final points on your outline there. Remember the Savior. Remember the soteriology of Christ. Remember the sociology even of his own life. Um, adoption isn't stigmatized for us in our faith. Our Savior himself was adopted. Have you ever stopped to think that Jesus himself was adopted? Joseph adopted him as his earthly father. He had no biological connection to Jesus, but was in a relationship of adoption. Jesus came. He had a father in heaven. He's incarnate, the son. He steps into this human history and this rebellion, and, and, and he gives his life for us. The man who is mocked as king is a king. The man who is utterly powerless is all-powerful. The man who cannot save himself saves his people. The man who is fatherless has a father. In John chapter 5, people were scandalized that Jesus spoke of God as his very own father. Even more scandalous that we can call him our father. When the disciples asked Jesus, hey, teach us how to pray. How did he start? Our father. The, so the sociological act of adoption has to be, has to be fueled by this. We're, we were fueled not by a false guilt, but rather by a gospel hope. John Piper writes that the deepest and strongest foundation of adoption is located not in the act of humans adopting humans, but in God adopting humans. And this act is not a part of his ordinary providence in the world. It is at heart in the gospel. Further, the heart of the gospel changes our hearts, and it continually draws us in repentance, which leads to the next point. We remember the Savior. Second, we repent of selfishness. Let's be honest. What keeps uh, most of us from action in our faith, especially adoption, it's ultimately selfishness. It, things in life get, get hard. Following after Jesus gets hard. Uh, following after Jesus can conflict with our plans, and those plans often put us in a place of comfort. Uh, but God calls us to a different path. The, he calls us to a path of suffering and sacrifice. He gives us a different example that is filled with both suffering and sacrifice. Again, this is fundamental to our gospel and to the work of Christ. Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found 
In appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the antithesis of our culture. He's the antithesis of selfishness. He's selfless. Adoption is counterintuitive and countercultural in our secular culture. If you want to dig in more beyond this sermon series, I'd highly recommend checking out this book by Russell Moore, Adopted for Life, or check out uh, these books by Robert Peterson, uh, Adopted by God, and by Dan Kruver, Reclaiming Adoption. The more you read and reflect, your, your eyes will be open to see how, how adoption makes us different. Other religions don't do this. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't practice this, and they don't see God as this. In terms of secular culture, just think about Planned Parenthood, the movement started by a white racist, Margaret Sanger, who defended abortion rights on the basis of eugenics, which was fueled by her racism, and the search for good genes based on racist and evolutionary notions of social Darwinism. Margaret Sanger fought against adoption. Do you know that? She fought against adoption. Her children continue that legacy. Her grandson, Alexander Sanger, who founded the birth control movement, continues her campaign today. Just listen to what Mr. Sanger writes. Adoption is counterintuitive from an evolutionary vantage point of both biological mother and adoptive parents. Adoption requires a person to devote time and resources to raising a child that is not genetically related. Adoption puts the future of a child in the control of a stranger. What? Again, I'm, you know, contrast, right? Islam doesn't do this. Secular humanists don't do this. It's easier for a woman to have an abortion, Sanger continues, or for a family to refuse to think about adopting because evolution and biology conspire to thwart adoption. Evolution has programmed women to be nurturers of the children they bear. That's why the abortion industry, air contends, adoption as the solution to abortion problem is a cruel hoax. Think about how wrong that is. Think about how dark that is. Dr. Russell Moore addresses this in his book, Adopted for Life, which I recommended a moment ago. He writes, Sanger has an ideology, a family heritage, a financial viability of the abortion industry to guard. So his words aren't going to convince many followers of Jesus, but aren't they sad and telling? Perhaps what our churches need most of all in our defense of the faith against Darwinian despair is not more resources on how the fossil record fits with the book of Genesis, not more arguments on how molecular structures show evidence of design. Perhaps the most practical way your congregation can show Darwinism to be wrong is to showcase families for whom love is more than gene protection. Dang, mic drop. Some of you are like, I want you to drop your mic too. Matt, get this sermon over. Okay, I got two points left. React in sympathy. React in sympathy. Remember the Savior, repent of selfishness, react in sympathy. We read in James 1, 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, right, is, is to care for orphans. Widows as well. The stats are incredible. Every year, even more than 114,000 children are, are in foster care available for adoption across this nation now. Over, over 20,000 in Los Angeles. Many of them spend more than five years waiting for a permanent loving home. Can you imagine just waiting for five years to have a family? That's incredible. No fault of their own. These children enter foster care as a result of abuse, neglect, abandonment, difficult situations. The average child waiting five years. 19% of them, 19% of them are going to age out without ever having a home. 
you think about that. Like, if you age out and you never have a home, like, where do you go for Thanksgiving? We just had Thanksgiving. Where do you go for Christmas? It's coming. Disproportionately, the stats show that those who age out are disproportionately ending up homeless, addicted, uh, in criminality, incarceration, mental health, and more. If we really want to change the city, I, I, would, I would contend that in addition to heralding the gospel of, of a God who adopts sinners is the act of adopting sinners. It radically changed the, the sociological dimensions of the city. So closing this sermon series, I'd encourage you to talk to God, talk to families in the church who've adopted and fostered. If you, if you yourselves cannot do it, you know, give to this end as we seek to worship the God who has adopted all of us. And ultimately, final point, we rest in his sovereignty. You look at the stats and it, it can be overwhelming. And so we need to be reminded that God is in control of all of this. He's in control of all of this, just as he's in control of our salvation. We began in Ephesians 1 where it talked about him predestining us before the foundation of the world. That kind of language reminds us, look, God's in control of this. He planned this out from the beginning. He's executing his plan. His plan cannot be thwarted. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We don't have to walk in fear of the statistics, uh, in, in brokenness because of the brokenness. We have been welcomed. We have been given a Father. He is good. He will empower us. Let us celebrate Him. We have tables in front of us. I'm going to pray. We're going to have communion. A table reminds you of family. Uh, um, seeing pictures of, uh, you know, I, was, I mentioned earlier of a, a guy who was homeless and didn't have a family being welcomed into a family for a meal. The communion table reminds us that God has welcomed us at his table. And the way that he has welcomed us is through his son, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed out for us. By grace, you have been saved in him who died in your place, who rose in your place, who has ascended in heavenly places, giving you union with him and access to his father, so that we can call his father our father. Let's do that now as we pray and we sing and we come to the table. Our father in heaven, we hallow your name. We come now to sing songs of worship unto you and to celebrate your great plan before the foundations of the world to rescue sinners, not only to forgive them, but to make them family. Almighty son, we thank you that you have come for us we want to commemorate your, your work, your life, your death, your resurrection as we come to this table. Lord, as the bread breaks in our mouth, as the juice hits our lips, we are reminded of the sweetness that comes through your suffering, of the family that you have built as we come together to the table. Every Sunday, every Sunday, as often as we can, we do this as you have commanded to remember you. And as the brothers and sisters in this room come to the table, Lord, and we partake and we sing, Lord, move by your spirit to deeply press into us the beauty of belonging in your church and being here today and seeing your adoptive work before our hands. Such we are, the children of God. Receive these songs of worship in this time of communion, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.